Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're excited to be speaking with Laura Sennett, policy specialist at UNCDF and an expert in blended finance and the multilateral system. Laura, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks very much. I'm excited and honored to be here. Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what was the path that led you to UNCDF? Thanks. So I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was very far away from the international world that I was seeking to explore. And I don't know why, but from a very early age, I knew I wanted to do something international, but I did not know what that meant. So I figured I needed to get a degree in international relations or something like that. And so I went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service, and I had a mix of history, economics, and philosophy courses. And I started thinking maybe I wanted to be in diplomacy, maybe in international journalism, but I still wasn't sure. I did study abroad my junior year, and I went to Senegal. So I already spoke French, and I wanted to go somewhere that sounded more exciting to me than France or Belgium. No offense to France or Belgium, but Georgetown had a program in Senegal that was a Francophone study abroad program. My parents were like, absolutely not a chance, and I was like, great, then I'll do it. So I signed up for that, and in a very cliche way, it really was life-changing for me. So I had an incredible experience. Um, I was captivated by the history, the culture, the people. I had an incredible host family who I was really close with and remain in contact with. And I really think they were the driving force behind why my experience was so wonderful. I got to experience the very typical daily life of a Senegalese family or person in a way that even some of the other people I studied abroad with did not. And so I just got to see and understand so much that I think an outsider rarely has access to because they just brought me along to everything they were doing. And so that experience really pushed me towards working in development. And eventually I went on to get my master's in development economics and then eventually ended up at UNCDF. So you're skipping over a good amount of activity in between there. Before you joined UNCDF, I know that you spent much of your career in Africa. So please walk us through that as well. Once I'd had that experience in Senegal, I knew I wanted to go back there or somewhere else in the region. And so I initially returned to Senegal for the summer right after I graduated from undergrad. And then eventually I went back. I worked for a developing consulting firm based in Abuja, Nigeria, and was based out of there for two years. We had projects all over West Africa working with ECOWAS, which is the Economic Community of West African States, actually doing a report on the UN Millennium Development Goals, marking their progress to see how they were doing. We also had a number of contracts with the Nigerian government, helping them revitalize and modernize their customs agency, doing a project for their transport ministry. So really good on the ground experience. Then during graduate school, I also had an internship working for an American NGO in Liberia. And eventually after graduate school, I returned to work in Cote d'Ivoire, initially on a Fulbright Fellowship. And then I joined the African Development Bank, which has its headquarters in Cote d'Ivoire as well. I found living in Africa to be wonderful. As I mentioned, I lived in four different countries, but I've worked or traveled in about 25. And 
One thing I've really come to appreciate in all my experiences is the time that I spent in rural areas. For example, I lived for one month in a village in the very north of Senegal, 14 kilometers from the border with Mauritania. And this was a village of 200 people. Nobody had a car in the whole village. They just had to hope and wait for a, a different vehicle to come by the village that had space and would pick them up. There was no flushing toilet. These were not the easiest, most comfortable experiences always, but I got a realistic view of the impact that development could have, the importance of education, services, access to services, access to transportation, and really the impact that, that could have on an individual, but also on a community. And then the years that I lived in the different either economic or political capitals of these countries were also incredible. I met amazing people. I had great friends. We ate amazing food. I learned local languages. I traveled to some remote, unique places that you would never go to if you were just there for tourism for a week because it just would be too time consuming to get there. And one thing that I really appreciate about working abroad is you're not just working abroad, you're living abroad. Your whole life is now about the context that you're in. So everything in your life is different. It's the people you're friends with. Where do you go on vacation? What language do you speak every day? What food did you have for lunch today? How do you commute to work? What do you do to work out? Like all of those things it wasn't like it was dramatic, but all of those things changed or were somehow different than what I had been doing or what I had been experiencing in my life growing up in the States. And I think this is something that I found when I came back from living in Africa for three years. And I wonder if you ran into it where it was very hard to communicate to Americans what the experience was like, because for me being in South Africa, I had also an amazing experience. There's so many wonderful things I ran into, but I also saw for the first time real poverty, real grinding poverty. And it's very hard to communicate that to Americans. And there was a massive disconnect because people would say to me, oh, you were in Africa, did you see animals? And I would say, yes, I went on some wonderful safaris and my whole worldview was changed because of my experience with poverty, but it was really hard to connect on that. So I wonder if you had that experience as well. Definitely. I also had the opportunity to go on some great safaris, but those were like three total days out of the almost 10 years that I lived there. So I'm thrilled I saw a lion. Something that really struck me in Abidjan was the economic disparity that existed. So in a lot of countries, particularly in West Africa, you have a really rich upper class, not middle class, but upper class. And these people, they've done very well for themselves and they are flying private all the time. They would never fly economy class. They go to the grocery store in designer brand names. And I'm like, wow, these people are fancy no matter where they were. That's just a fancy group of people. And I could see out my kitchen window people who lived in a shanty home that was nothing. I could see out my window a um, ravine that the year before everyone had been kicked out of. And that was their home. It was a township, basically, where that's where they lived. And it was dangerous for them to be there because of the heavy rainfalls sometimes. So the government came and kicked them all out. And the reality is they had nowhere else to go. I hope they found family. I hope they found friends. I hope they found somewhere to relocate. But you could just see that out of my kitchen window. It was so stark. And you encountered that every day where I lived, that there were people driving BMWs, there were some people driving Lamborghinis, but then there were people who they had a banana and that was what they were going to eat all day. Cote d'Ivoire is a food secure and energy secure country. So they're very lucky in that sense that people do not normally die from starvation or they don't really have issues with lack of energy. But still, there's a lot of other things that people do not have access to, which made their lives very challenging. 
And what would you say when you came back to visit your family or when you traveled out of Africa, what would you say was the biggest misconception that people had about your life in Africa? So when I started doing this kind of work, and admittedly, I did do a few fellowships in my time, but people would always be like, how's the program you're on? And I wasn't on a program. This was my whole life. I didn't have another apartment. I didn't have a different place I was living or something. This was it. And I think that people were not familiar with the level of development that exists in some of these middle to low income countries. It's just hard to imagine. I think there are some capital cities, I don't know, South Africa is sort of an outlier in some ways in some of its big cities and the level at which it's developed. And there's, of course, other examples, particularly in North Africa. But the idea that you can have Burger King and a frozen yogurt place and a 3D movie theater, but truly right outside is a man on his hands and knees who can't even get access to a, a wheelchair, even though he doesn't have legs or was a victim of polio. Like they still have victims of polio, right? That's something you see every day there. And now it has been eradicated, but that was people who are still alive, still in our lifetime, who really suffered from this and were not able to get the treatment that a lot of other Americans or otherwise wealthy people were able to access. It was that dichotomy that's really hard to explain. And then every country has like its own particularities. So what I would try to do whenever I went home was pick two stories, maybe very specific things that I would share. Because anybody knows who's traveled anywhere. Even if you go on a honeymoon to Bali or Italy, it doesn't matter. You can't explain everything you did every day. So you just pick two highlights, something that really touched you recently that you think would be interesting to share. And what would you say was the biggest misconception that Africans, your colleagues, your friends, people that you ran into in the countries where you lived, what was the biggest misconception they had about Americans? That is a good question. It's very simple, but probably that we're all rich. Particularly when I first went, I was a student and I was very fortunate in that I was going to a great school and I had my family supporting me and I was still within a construct that school was there following us along, but I didn't have any spending money. We were lucky that beer cost a dollar, but when I did want to go on vacation, and I remember it was, again, I'm very lucky. I wanted to go on vacation, but I had to ask my parents for money. I, there's no way I could have afforded to do that on my own. And again, I was very lucky that my parents were willing to help, but they did not fully subsidize the trip. We stayed in some really sketchy places in Mali one time. Like that was truly all that I could afford. I went with one girlfriend and we ate street food, which was fine and delicious, but we didn't go to restaurants, even in Bamako. We did not have enough cash on us to make that work. And then I think sometimes just that we are available for certain questions, that people could ask me whatever they wanted, that it would be okay to be outlandish in a way that I didn't think people would be with their own colleagues or friends or neighbors. Whether it was questions about love, relationships, family, or money, Sometimes being a new person, people are a little bit bolder to ask somebody a question that they've been wanting to know. Could you give us an example? Well, this is a bit of a different story, but when I was working in Nigeria, uh, this is one of the negative sides, I really was subject to a lot of sexual harassment. So not the entire time I was there, but on one particular project, we were working with a part of the government ministry and it was a paramilitary organization. So they were used to giving orders. They were used to just telling people what to do and everyone would follow that. And obviously I was not part of that paramilitary organization. I was consulting for the government with a group of other, not just Americans, but people from other countries in the world. 
So one was that people were just used to giving orders. The second was that organization happened to have had a hiring freeze for 20 years. So they only had people who were 50, 55, 65, and then they had brand new hires who were 22. So there really was a gap in who was there to do the work, who they were used to having as colleagues. And so particularly the other young colleagues within the organization, they took orders because they had to follow them. Everyone was in uniform. There was no question. It got pretty ridiculous. A colleague came into work one day and said the only reason he came to the office was because he wanted to see what I was wearing to work. So I was very uncomfortable for all of that. And to be honest, that was probably my worst work experience ever. It doesn't matter where it was, but it made me reevaluate what I always wanted to be doing in a workplace and how I wanted to present myself. So unfortunately, during the time that I continued working on this project, I did things like change myself. I didn't wear any makeup. I wore pants every day. And I stopped wearing dresses, things to try to protect myself. But it was a good learning experience in that the next time I took a new job, I made very clear from the beginning what was acceptable to me and what was not in terms of comments from colleagues, the types of questions and personal information I was willing or not willing to share. And part of that I took on as I was doing a Fulbright fellowship. I was a fellow sent by the United States government. And part of that is a bit of cultural diplomacy. And so I made sure that I was sharing with them what I considered to be typical American workplace norms and what would be standard and typical and acceptable. And we talked about the word sexual harassment, that their place of work didn't have a code on that. When I said, even though you guys don't, here's what I'm comfortable with. And I appreciate that you would respect me in these ways. And I never had even an ounce of an issue then. It was like great. It was an incredible work environment. Everyone was wonderful. I definitely learned something from that experience. What a great story. And thank you for sharing that cross-cultural challenge, age-related challenge, gender-related challenge. When I was very young and working in Prague at Radio Free Europe, sexual harassment was in the news because of President Clinton. And many of our Eastern European colleagues would say, that's such an American invention. They didn't believe it was a thing. They thought it was fine to grab a woman at the Christmas party and not let her leave from the hallway behind where everybody else was. So it is the challenge being in different cultural contexts, but good for you for navigating it so well. So one of your African posts was at the African Development Bank, and there you became very interested and involved in blended finance. Please tell us about that. So in some ways, and it's almost like I'm reluctant to admit it, but it's fine. It was a happy accident. So I had been on my job for about six to eight months. And the group of multilateral development banks around the world really started talking about blended finance as a topic and something that they wanted to organize themselves around. How were they going to do blended finance? What did that mean to them? What was the definition? What were the guidelines for doing so? And at the time, this was in 2015, 16. So blended finance already existed, of course, but it was still new and there weren't these frameworks around it yet. So at the African Development Bank, no one was focusing on it from that sort of policy framework standpoint. There were individual transactions going on, but I volunteered. Just to say, sometimes you just have to be willing to raise your hand and do the work. And I got to be heavily involved in a really interesting opportunity because of that. And so that was really the beginning of the work that we did with the MDBs. There now are multiple years of reports of blended blended concessional private finance. I might've gotten the order of those words wrong, but from multiple years of reports on concessional blended finance from the MDBs, the work that they do in that area, their definition of blended finance and the guidelines and best practices for development practitioners who are going to use the scarce concessional resources. 
So that experience really turned me toward development finance and mobilization of finance as topics within the larger development space. So I was able to indicate my preferences and focus on that at the African Development Bank. So I was involved in a number of different innovative transactions, including setting up a new blended finance facility. But then also, in addition to the work we did with the MDBs as a group, I then instituted, created the blended finance framework for the African Development Bank, which really sets out the approach and the controls and the questions that need to be asked before using these scarce resources for investing in the private sector. And through that, had other really great experiences working on questions about additionality, value for money, and really measuring private sector mobilization, among others. So I know blended finance is a mixed term that's like impact investing. It can mean a lot of things to many people. And I know that you were very involved in creating the definition. So I wonder if you could define for us blended, concessional, private sector, and additionality. Sure. So concessionality is funding that takes place at less than market rates. So what is available in the market commercially, anything less than that is concessional. And blended finance is a mix of concessional and non-concessional, so commercial capital, going into a transaction, a project, an investment. As you mentioned, there are many definitions. So the MDB or DFI definition that we created says you need to have really that strict mix. There's still some debate out there about if that means you need to mobilize a third party to bring in that private sector, or can that be the project sponsor, or can that be maybe the DFI or MDB itself? Within the definition, it can be. There's an and or, which was also a point of a lot of discussion during the definition, but that is what the term blended finance means. I will say, from my opinion, I think it's very important that practitioners use that definition because that definition was agreed by a group of practitioners. The OECD has a slightly broader definition where they created that definition looking more at the donor community and how the donor funds are being used and sent to others, but the practitioners themselves are the one doing the deals, so that's why there is a bit of a difference in the two definitions. Additionality then, there's a developmental and financial additionality, and so this is looking at what would happen if that other transaction had not. Is there something additional that would come in to the market, to this project, to whatever you're trying to impact that would not be there if the transaction that you are working on was happening? So again, the DFIs and MDBs, most of them have their own additionality frameworks and the MDBs got together and now have a common framework as well. But this is really then you can, depending on the different tools that are being used, you can measure what is the financial additionality that is bringing to this project? How can we know that this is something different or more than what the private sector itself or the public sector itself would bring in? Why is this more than what would be there? And that's same for the development additionality. Are we making sure that there's a positive development impact from this project? So uh, I can tell you at the MDBs, for example, they won't approve a project if it does not have both of these criteria. And some of them are on a sort of... Uh, yes or no scale, and some of them have actually a grading in which you get a number of points and they need to have a minimum number of points to be approved. So what you're explaining is really how then this multilateral development bank or development finance institution community is defining what is the justification for using public sector money in deals that benefit private sector actors. Exactly. And that's really the concern. 
right? And that's why we even hear from the LDC community, the least developed country community that we work with in the UN, that there's some red there's some hesitancy around using blended finance because they want to make sure that all the donor capital that they're getting would go into projects that are really high priority for them. And the argument is that there are some instances in which promoting or building or helping develop a market or a private sector company or industry can really be beneficial for the whole country, not just benefit that exact private sector company. And so there's a benefit to using some of that public sector money, particularly because it will hopefully mobilize or catalyze additional financing to come into that project. So if you start with $5, maybe you can actually fund a project that's worth 15 because you're able to bring more money in. And this discussion, of course, is valid in across different kinds of governments. I remember hearing from one of the leaders of the Obama administration clean energy policy that in 2008, as part of the bailout package, the U.S. government gave a $200 million very low interest or no interest loan to Tesla to keep them alive because they're going to go out of business. Now Tesla has all these private sector gains. So I think it's an active debate that concerned citizens should be asking these questions of, is this the most efficient way to use public sector money? And what is the benefit to the overall good of citizens versus the private financial benefit of companies? Absolutely. And I think that's why the MDBs, for example, organized themselves before their shareholders started asking them these really difficult questions. They knew that it was coming. So they tried to preempt that by saying, here's our checklist. Here's the questions we're asking ourselves before we agree to do this. And we're making sure that this is a smart use of this money. So Laura, after you joined UNCDF, you were the lead author on the latest edition, the 2020 edition of the UNCDF OECD report on blended finance in the LDCs. What are some key findings of that report? Yes. So that was a very big endeavor that we're very pleased to have that published last year, as you mentioned. And we came out with a four-point action agenda. And actually, we did a whole podcast on this in December of last year, if you want a deep dive on the report. But we actually tried to take the point action agenda that existed already in the first report. So this was the third in a series of report and build on that. Because the reality is the challenges and issues that were discussed in the previous two reports have not been resolved. And we wouldn't have expected them to be completely resolved in three years. We're talking about an entire international financial system. Change will take a long time. So our four points of recommendation build on what was there and also really look at the current context, particularly looking at the impacts of COVID and how blended finance can particularly be used to build back better post-COVID-19. So the first recommendation is that we should really support local financial markets. And this includes building up local ecosystem of actors so that, for example, when a blended finance deal is done somewhere, making sure that when that deal is closed or the project is over, that knowledge doesn't leave the market where it is. So making sure that there really is this ecosystem locally that can then be involved in these transactions and then replicate them maybe in a different sector in a different way, but somehow continue to build on that and move forward. Second is... We really wanted to focus on designing projects that will reach the most vulnerable, the last mile, as we call it. So one of the things we were looking at is that, again, if you're going to use these scarce concessional resources, make sure that they're going where they're really necessary. But also being careful that you're not using them in a place where purely TA or technical assistance, capacity building or grant might actually be the most useful. 
So thinking about those different populations, groups, whether it's the last mile or the missing middle, looking at really what group are you trying to target and being thoughtful and deliberate about then how you are structuring the deal that you're doing, making sure that you're using the right instrument for the actual either market failure or challenge that you're trying to address. Third is improve impact measurement and transparency. And this is all about sharing knowledge, sharing best practices, sharing more information about the deals themselves so that others can learn from those experiences. So while Blended Finance has been around for at least 10 years being called Blended Finance, but longer than that in practice, the reality is there's still a small track record of some of these deals, particularly looking at LDCs, which was the focus of our report. And so one thing that will help is having more of a track record is that then you'll have other potential investors who can see that there are investable deals that are possible in these markets. And fourth, we really talked about bringing blended finance to scale with systemic approaches. So one of the challenges of investing in LDCs, whether you're using purely commercial or blended finance, is just the size of the deals, the ticket sizes, and then also the risks that are involved in doing that, whether it's perceived or real risks. So there's a lot of benefit that comes from aggregating some of these projects so that you can use blended finance at scale. And this then will help diversify the risk because by putting together projects maybe from different geographies or from different sectors or different types of projects, you're going to automatically diversify the risk. And then by bringing them together, you also have a larger ticket size, which makes it easier for private investors to come in. And again, just do this at a larger scale because otherwise, as any private sector investor knows, you otherwise need to do due diligence on individual, very small transactions. And that is not going to get us to the COVID recovery that these countries need. Thanks for that great summary, Laura. So when you talk about systemic approaches, what can the international development finance architecture, so the multilateral development banks, the development finance institutions, donor countries, and impact investors focused on this issue, what can they do better to ensure more and better quality blended finance reaches the LDCs? One thing that I think has been really clear is what the international development finance community needs to do in terms of their relationship and communication with the private finance community. This is something that people have been talking about for a long time, that there's a difference in language. And I think that people always just say, yeah, of course, those people have an MBA and the other people over here always talk about development impact. And I think even I initially understood it as, oh, literally the words on the page are different. Like we talk about things in different ways. And I think that's still true. I think there is an element of these different groups talk about things in a different way. But I also think there's What's becoming clear to me that I've seen even in the past month in discussions that I've been involved in, there's really a knowledge gap between these two groups. So it's not just that we call it apples and you call them apples. It's that there's really a difference in the experience, the information, the types of instruments, knowing how they work. And then on the flip side, knowing how do we measure the development impact? How are we making sure that this is not greenwashing our investments? How do we make sure that this is going to have the market impact effect that we're looking for? And I think that these communities, if blended finance continues to be a sexy buzzword in development finance world, I think that these communities need to do a better job of really putting their cards on the table and saying what they do and don't know about each other and seeing how to work together. There are some financial issues as well, just in that there are some private sector 
particularly large institutional investors who will never come into small deals, who will never come into illiquid, non-investable grade deals. And that's going to take really moving mountains. But why don't we start with some of the molehills first and make sure that people who are really trying to do this work understand each other. And I know you and some of our UNCDF colleagues, including myself, are trying to address some of the gaps in this knowledge. Why don't you tell us how you're doing that? So thanks to UNCDF, we are taking part in a impact investing in Africa course from the University of Cape Town Business School. And we actually just had our kickoff class today. So personally, I am really looking at this to see how I can get more involved in the structuring and due diligence of deals. I think that now, as you can tell from what I've shared with you today, I have a lot of experience on the policy side, and I was there from the beginning in some of these things, but I want to get my hands dirtier now in some of the operations. So for all our listeners out there who are interested in careers in the international system, in the multilateralism or diplomacy, one thing that Laura and I have both seen is that development finance with a focus on the finance part is becoming increasingly important to achievement of international development agendas like the SDGs to the Paris Climate Agreement. We're seeing more and more demand for investable products on climate change and to have this kind of creativity and be able to analyze both the financial returns of a deal, but also know what the development impact is. So for our listeners, just to flag that those are some skills you might want to brush up on. So Laura, coming back to something that we've talked about in the past, I know you mentioned that learning French really changed your life. And I wonder if you could talk about that for our audience. So again, this comes from my days as a monolingual English speaker in the middle of America in Wisconsin. And for those of you who haven't seen me before, I am white Caucasian with brown hair and just look like a lot of other people. But for some reason, I really wanted to learn something that was just so foreign to me. Starting at age 12, I think, in middle school, I started taking French classes. And I just knew, I always knew that I wanted to be fluent in French or in a second language. Even though at that time, I think the only person I knew who spoke a second language was my French teacher. So I don't know where I got that idea from. But I just really continued to study it. And it was one of my favorite classes. I was very lucky that in high school, my teacher really taught us the language through culture. So we barely had a textbook at all. Instead, she would teach us all about the Renaissance and the Impressionists and the Cubism movement. And we would learn all about these artists and who were they friends with and how did these painting techniques come out and why was that important? We would have this whole conversation in French. And then at college, because as I mentioned, I studied international relations, we still did have a language requirement. But I could have passed out right away, but I decided to keep studying it because I really wanted to get better. I wanted to improve my French. On a side note, going to Senegal is not the best place to improve your French because even though they are a Francophone country, they really speak Wolof all day long. So I became conversational in Wolof at one point, and that was very unique and interesting. But French has really made it possible for me to expand my career on the African continent, at least. And they're just places that I know that I've been and involved in conversations that wouldn't be possible if I didn't speak French. So for any listeners, if you are in high school or in undergrad, two pieces of advice. If you want to do something international, definitely learn a second language, like for sure. And you are so lucky that you are in school right now. And I'm sure that there is a language to be learned, whatever school you are at. And secondly, if you want to do something international, you don't have to go to Georgetown, though. You can go anywhere. Just get really good grades, and then doors will be open to you. 
And the one thing that you're forgetting to mention, Laura, is that your husband is also French speaking. So that might have had something to do with your personal happiness as well. Yes, that's true. We met in Cote d'Ivoire. He was working at the French embassy initially. And now I brought him to the U.S. with me. And we actually had our green card interview this morning. So really bringing him into the fold. Congratulations. We love immigrants. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura, for being with us and sharing your expertise and your experience. We're really happy that you were able to join us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure. And thanks also to our audience for tuning in to UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.